Uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's where we're going to be today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll start in verse 7, and then we'll skip a bunch of verses, and we'll go down to uh, verse 25 through 35. We've been spending uh, a few weeks, uh, we've got a couple more after today, we've had a couple uh, before today, uh, talking about marriage. And in this series, we're looking at these various texts of Scripture, we're kind of bouncing around the Bible a little bit, and we're really trying to, in that, um, cultivate a deep appreciation for the design of God. God's designed for this, really, this most important of and intimate of human relationships. But equally important in that discussion is to consider God's design not just for marriage relationships, but also God's design for singleness. And let's just get this out there, you know, right off the bat this morning. Like, if, if in trying to understand marriage, we're prone to, like, not hit bullseyes as Christians, like, we don't even hit the target when we come to, to understand singleness. You know, we might not even be in the right restaurant where the dartboard is to try to throw the dart at the board to try to understand singleness sometimes. Um, we just don't do a great job cultivating a deep and robust appreciation for, well, an appreciation for, and then for some people, a pursuit of singleness, a singleness that, that glorifies God. So even that word, you know, which I debated, like, is there a way to even avoid using that word in the sermon this morning? The word singleness. It has this connotation of isolation. You know, we, even, the, even the phrases that we kind of build in around that. There are people who are, quote-unquote, in a relationship, and there are people who are not in a relationship. Uh, but, of course, all of us, as image bearers of God, we're meant to be, we're designed to be in relationships. And some of us, perhaps most of us, are designed to be in this particular and unique relationship called marriage, but we can quickly start to go down this road where we throw out the immense commonality that we have as image bearers of God designed for relationship, and we instead start to focus in on the differences so much so that it plays up the distinctions in a way that divides us, that keeps us separated, that keeps you know unmarried people over here and, and married people over here, equates different kinds of, you know, attaches different kinds of value and worth to each of those states of life. The fact of the matter is that we actually, as image bearers of God, have much more in common than we do have differences. And that's even more true for us as Christians, as those who share this identity, as people who have been bought out of sin, brought into the family of God, called sons and daughters of God. And when we forget that immense amount of commonality that we have, Married folks, in particular, start to say well-meaning, but really goofy things to those people who are not married. About 15 or 16 years ago, there was a woman named Paige Benton, and she wrote an article uh, called Singled Out by God for Good. It's one of the best, uh, most honest treatments of this subject that I've ever come across. And even though some of the cultural references are now um, you know, outdated, it was like 1998, I think, when she wrote it. So, like, if you're like just graduating college in the last couple of years, you won't get like half of the the, the references in there. Um, I would highly commend that that article to you. And in it, she says this: she says, "Warp theology is at the heart of attempts to quote unquote explain singleness." So, a, a misunderstanding of who God is 
and how he relates with us and a misunderstanding of who we are, like a, a bad theology, a warped theology, is really what's underneath attempts to explain, and she puts that in quotes, singleness. And she goes on to include a list of examples. So see how many of these sound familiar to you, that you've either been told or maybe you know, been told like yesterday or have told other people. She uses this, this list. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. Anybody heard that before? Paige Benton goes on to say, as though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. As though, as though God's blessings are ever earned by our being content. Here's another one. You're too picky. Anybody been told that they're too picky before? You're too picky. She goes on to say, as though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs, a fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. She says, she lists this example. Before you, uh, as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. And the last one she says, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. Like make you someone, someone wonderful. And she goes on to say, as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. Like once you reach this certain stage of being sanctified in your life, then you qualify to, to be married. So I laughed when I read these. Um, but it was that uncomfortable kind of laughter. You know what I'm talking about? It's the uncomfortable kind of laughter because I've heard many of those things in my life verbatim. And even scarier, even more uncomfortable, I've actually absorbed some of them into the way that I think. And even more uncomfortable than that, because I've absorbed them into the way that I think, I've then passed them along. Maybe without the cliche phrases, but even passed some of those things along. So today, as we're really trying to together cultivate a more robust understanding of God's design, and specifically for singleness, but also for marriage... It'll also be a pursuit of, of repentance for the ways in which that we have absorbed warped views, warped theology that really don't align with the heart and the character of God. And really my prayer for us is that this will be helpful and fruitful for all of us, whether you are unmarried or, or married this morning. So we're in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. It's a really messy group of people, and a lot of problems. And Paul steps his way through a lot of different issues uh, that he speaks about in that letter. Um, one of the things he tackles, one of the topics he tackles is this, how to understand singleness, how to understand marriage. Um, so you can follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read um, chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 7, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 25. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. And then skipping down to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they, as, as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, would you help us to really, um, just to come with an open mind and heart before you this morning, willing to have our assumptions challenged, whatever those might be, and willing to really just from your word and your spirit's work in our hearts um, perceive the beauty of your design for marriage and for singleness, and that as a community of people that includes both, that we would grow together in our love and appreciation for one another in different marital stages, our our support for one another, our ability to, to do life well with one another and to give good counsel to one another. Would you help us in that? Would you... Would you use your word to to sharpen us this morning? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So Paul makes uh, some really challenging statements about marriage and singleness in these verses. And as we wrestle with those, I think it's really helpful, really important to think about the lenses that he's looking through that that really shape his view. And I'm going to pull out three parts of those lenses that we'll talk about a little bit this morning. Uh, And here's the idea, a robust view of singleness. Where does that come from, according to Paul? Where where does he get the lenses for a robust view of singleness? Three things. A taste of the future, thoughtfulness about anxieties and interests, and trust in the goodness of God. A taste of the future, thoughtfulness about anxieties and interests, and trust in the goodness of God. So first off, a robust view of singleness comes from a taste of the future. The first read, when you make your way through this this passage, it almost sounds like Paul has a negative view of life, a negative view of the future. In verse 26, he talks about the present distress, and we don't really know exactly what he's referring to there. Uh, In verse 29, he says that the appointed time has grown very short. And in verse 31, he says that the present form of this world is passing away. So it's almost like, if we're not careful, it almost sounds like Paul is saying something like, you only live once. Life is short, life is hard, so don't bother with marriage. It's not worth it, you know? To put it crassly, like if you don't have to get married, if you can, he he says it elsewhere in this verse in a a slightly more um, eloquent way, if you can keep your pants on, then don't bother with marriage. You don't need it. It almost sounds like he's saying something like that. But Paul actually has an incredibly positive view of the future and of this life. And in this very same letter, he's going to talk about the resurrection of people from death to life, just as Jesus went before them, resurrected from death to life. And he's going to tell the Corinthians that our lives and our labor are never in vain. They have deep meaning. They have deep purpose. 
So what's he saying here in 1 Corinthians 7? He's saying that the starting point is to see that neither singleness nor marriage is ultimate. Neither one of those things is ultimate. He's saying there's something that's much more ultimate than either of these states of life, and that something is the kingdom of God. When Jesus began his ministry, he came, uh, and this refrain that he proclaimed as he went about doing his, his ministry was that the kingdom of God was at hand. And what that means was that the rule and reign of God had broken through in the life and ministry of Jesus in a way that it hadn't before that. And then eventually, through his death and resurrection, he even more so secures the victory of the kingdom of God. Once Jesus has, has, had completed that work, once he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, that means there's only one remaining piece of God's redemptive history that we're waiting to happen, we're waiting for it to happen, and that's for Jesus to come again. It's the only thing that's left in God's redemptive history that we're waiting for. So the apostles in the early church after this happened started referring to this era of history as the last days. The last days now has been going on for like 2,000 years, but they've referred to it as the last days. And that's what Paul means when he says that this, the appointed time has grown short. He means that you know, we're in the last days, we're in this era this last era of God's redemptive work. And because God's kingdom is already present, he says that the the current state of the world, the, the world as it is, is passing away, even if that takes hundreds or thousands of years to complete. So there's this tension that emerges in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, between what's sometimes referred to as the already and the not yet. Meaning that because the present form of this world is passing away, but isn't quite completely dead yet, there's still an incredible brokenness. There's incredible distress. There's incredible pain and suffering involved in our lives. But at the same time, because the kingdom of God is at hand, there's also very real joy, and there's very real reconciliation, and there's very real flourishing. But though both of these things make up uh, what's real in our lives, our very real experience of day-to-day life, The kingdom of God is the ultimate reality. And if that's the ultimate reality that we get to taste even now, then it completely changes how we live our lives. Completely changes how we're going to live our lives if that's the ultimate reality. And Paul here doesn't just talk about marriage and singleness as the only examples. He says that those who mourn should live as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as those who have no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. So what's he trying to say there? Well, the big idea is don't get so situated in your present that you cease to taste the future. Don't get so situated in the here and now, in your current state of life, that you cease to taste the future, that you lose your appetite, so to speak, for the fullness of the kingdom of God. Now, how does that affect our view of singleness and and marriage. Well, for one, it takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off. You might not feel like it takes the pressure off, but it actually, in the the grand scope, cosmic sense of things, it takes the pressure off. If this world were the ultimate reality, then we would likewise feel an ultimate pressure to get it right, to do it perfectly. And the fact that this is not the ultimate reality takes that pressure off of it. At the same time that it relieves that pressure, though, it also gives immense purpose 
to both singleness and marriage. If the, if the kingdom is ultimate, then both singleness and marriage have a unique but incredibly valuable contribution. They each point to the ultimate reality of God's kingdom in different ways. Marriage as this reflection of this relationship between Jesus and his people. That's the unique contribution of, of marriage. Singleness as a picture of what Paul calls here undivided devotion to the Lord. And that's what leads us to the second part of the lenses that Paul has on here as he writes this. A robust view of singleness comes not just from a taste of the future, but also from thoughtfulness about anxieties and interests. In the verses that we, that we read, Paul speaks of freedom from anxieties. And he speaks about freedom from having divided interests. And this is probably the area where we're the most likely to say or think things that are well-intended but really misguided. So we need to make sure that we actually read and understand the wisdom of what Paul says here and not read in things that he's not saying here. Um, Simply stated, what he's saying here in this passage is that unmarried men and women do not have this very significant and intimate covenantal human relationship to compete with their attention and their affection and their devotions and their interests. That's what he's simply saying. It's just basically stating the definition of marriage. If you're married, you have this relationship. If you're not married, you don't have that relationship. What he's not saying, but what we might be tempted to hear and read in ourselves in these words, are things like this. He doesn't say that people are without, that single people are without anxiety. You know, sometimes it comes across that way, like married people have anxiety, single people don't. Okay? Single people have a lot of anxiety, not least of which many single people who'd like to be married have a lot of anxiety about that. So he's not saying that single people are without anxiety. He doesn't say uh, that single people are automatically wholeheartedly devoted to God. There's a thousand things for each of us, whether married or single, that compete for our devotion, that compete for our worship. What are we going to fix our eyes and fix our affections on? That's true for married people. That's true for single people. So staying single is not like the silver bullet solution for a vibrant spiritual life. Okay, And that's true as much as like young Christian men would want to believe otherwise when they use that as the card they play for like breaking up with their girlfriend. No experience with that. That's, I never did anything like that remotely in my life. That's uh, not the case. It's not, a, it's not a silver bullet solution to a vibrant spiritual life just to remain single. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that married people sacrifice their faithfulness to Jesus on the altar of marriage. Married people can actually be as serious about their faith, can be as devoted to the Lord as single people. And he doesn't say that married people have to choose between Jesus and their spouse. They don't have to see that as an either-or kind of decision. This is one of the things, the many things, that I really appreciate about my wife. Um, She doesn't buy into the hype of me being a pastor. Does that make sense? Like, like I'm prone to sometimes believe my own hype, like my hype, you know, in, in my own mind, where I go down this kind of ridiculous train of thought of like, because I'm working for the church, doing the Lord's work, my work, my responsibilities are just that much more important. And she just doesn't let me get away with that for like half a second, you know. It's like, I'm doing this for Jesus. She's like, no, you're not. You're doing it for you. And some misplaced sense of self-worth. So come on back. 
Come on back. Let's talk about it. Okay, here's the bottom line. Don't overread the conclusion that Paul is making here. Don't overread it. He's saying married people, by virtue just of what marriage is, they've already committed a, st- a substantial portion of their whole self to this one other human being, this one other important human covenantal relationship. Single people have not. That's just the definition of it. And there's only a finite amount of self to go around. So there's more capacity of self. There's more gas in the tank to be spent in other relationships and other endeavors in following Jesus for people that are not married. So here's what I hope we see in this too. Paul, as he even says this, is expressing a really high view of both singleness and marriage. He's saying marriage is actually really significant. It's going to take a lot of energy and time and devotion and affection to do well. Your spouse is going to need that from you. It would actually be a lot scarier if Paul said something else here like, hey, just don't worry about it. Get married. You can always neglect your spouse later. It's not that big a deal. Instead, speaking with this high view here of both singleness and marriage, Paul's trying to help unmarried people understand the realities of marriage. He's trying to give them a little bit of a, of a preview of what that's going to look like. He's trying to take marriage, I think, off of the pedestal that unmarried people might be prone to, to put marriage on. And he's trying to get rid of the false and really hurtful notions that you're incomplete or that you're deficient or that you haven't arrived somehow in life until you're married. And you know what he does? You know what he, the gift that he gives you when he does that? It's freedom. He gives you freedom. If you don't have to get married, if you're not supposed to get married because culture says so or the church says so, or your parents say so, or whoever else says so, if you don't need a spouse to complete you, then you have the genuine freedom with a choice where either option can be so good, can be so honoring to God. And that's, there's freedom in that. So practically then, what, what, are the, what are the implications? What are the implications of that? There's a lot, but just one that I want to mention today, thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness. This requires a lot more thoughtfulness than we often might want to give it. So if you come from like a traditional background, or if you're someone that has more traditional views, then in your mind probably everyone should, be, should get married. And there's kind of something wrong with you if you don't get married. You know, you kind of look at people that are like in their late 30s or 40s or whatever the age is, and they're not married, and you're like, oh, something just must be off with that person. If, you're more, if you come from a more progressive background, you have more progressive views, then really everybody should just do what they want. Everybody should just follow their impulses and do what they want. Neither of those things requires a whole lot of thoughtfulness. It doesn't require a whole lot of thoughtfulness because there's no freedom of choice in that. You just do what you're supposed to do or what you want to do based on your impulse. Paul's words here actually make you think deeply and consider thoughtfully what each kind of life will entail. You know, the freedoms and the responsibilities of each kind of life, the opportunities and the challenges of each kind of life, and what each kind of life is for in the design of God. So the invitation here from Paul as he lays this out and gives you that freedom is, be thoughtful about this. Think about it. Think about the anxieties and the implications and the, and the divided interests, that what that might look like as you wrestle with what God is leading you to do. And even more specifically, as you're thoughtful, ask the why question. You know, why do you want to be single? Why do you want to be married? 
the deep motive level, do, do your desires, do your motives underneath why, for either side, do they line up with the way God's designed singleness or the way God's designed marriage? Because we can, we can really be off with our motives for either one of those things. And a side note on this, um, pursue this kind of thoughtfulness in community with other people. Surround yourself with people who, who know you uh, and who love you and who love you enough not to just agree with you all the time and people that you'll listen to and people that you'll respect even when they, they don't agree with you. People who like Paul here, as he wraps up in verse 35, people who would give you their counsel and speak into your life as best as they can from what they perceive and then still at the end wrap it up and say this, I say this for your benefit. Have, that, have people around you who have that heart for you and be a person that has that heart for someone else where you give them counsel and you go, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but I really want good things for you. And that really brings us to the last piece of, of Paul's lenses here. A robust view of singleness comes from trust in the goodness of God. Trust in the goodness of God. Both singleness uh, and marriage are good gifts from a good God. And that's what verse 7, the first verse that we read today, that's exactly what that says. He calls both of these things gifts. And each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And we see it, we've seen it now in multiple places in this text. Both singleness and marriage are incredibly valued. They're diff- valuable. They're different. They, they're unique. But they're both valuable. Just as important, though, and I think what Paul's getting at here, neither is meant to be idolized. Both are important. Both are valuable. Neither is meant to be idolized. Neither singleness nor marriage can hold up under the weight of your hopes and your dreams. It's not strong enough to carry that. But we try instead so often to have singleness or marriage hold the weight of our hopes and dreams. And I think that's why there's so much discontent and there's so much disillusionment about both of these states of life from both married and unmarried people. There's so much discontent and disillusionment because we put too much weight on our marital status. It's kind of the, the Christian relationship version of the grass being greener on the other side kind of that mental game that we play. Married people tend to think that they're hindered and wish, I wish I had the freedom of a single person. And single people tend to think they're incomplete and wish they had the completion of a married person. But there's a really deeply flawed view of God underneath both of those things. And it's a view that really undermines or completely ignores God's goodness. So married people, I would invite you to consider this. You're not being hindered. You're not being hindered. You're actually experiencing a unique form of preparation for God's kingdom. We've talked about that the last couple weeks. Husbands and wives become for each other in their marriage instruments of God's sanctification. And that happens in all other kinds of relationships too, particularly in the church. If we're serving as the community God intends us to be, then all of us are experiencing that kind of sharpening. But there really is something unique about how that can happen in a marriage relationship. And that's the opportunity. That's the gift of marriage. What's the gift of singleness? I think one of the big ones is capacity and flexibility. There's great potential to use your capacity, to use your flexibility for the good of others in pursuit of your faithfulness to Jesus. 
And it's not that married people don't have capacity and flexibility or can use that as an excuse. They're just as so much more of them, their self, their limited self devoted to this one relationship that single people, unmarried people have more of that. I'm actually hugely encouraged as I was thinking about this this week by the examples that we have of this in our midst. We've already embarrassed him once, so like, why not a second time? Uh, Paul Cho is using his flexibility and his capacity for great things, for, for pursuing relationships with people. Uh, Eric Stelzer, who did that video for us, is using his flexibility and capacity for great things. We, uh, a few weeks ago, we prayed for two of our uh, unmarried women, and we sent them out. We sent Susanna Bean to Washington, D.C. to serve there. We sent Anne McClary to Madagascar. Now, these are unmarried women who are using their flexibility and their capacity in life for the good of people. These are great pursuits. That's just to name a few. That's not even an exhaustive list. So unmarried people, I'd invite you to consider this. You don't have to earn a spouse by reaching a level of contentment. I think it's good to reach a level of contentment with where you are. You don't earn your spouse by reaching that level of contentment. Or you don't have to achieve a certain level of Christ-likeness before God will grant you a spouse as a reward. Now, that's not the way that our good God gives his good gifts. The completion that you might feel a need for, it's never for, uh, the completion that comes from a spouse, from a husband or wife. It's the completion that everyone needs. It's the completion of the image of God in you, which has been so fractured, so marred by sin, that wants to be completed, wants to be restored to the original glory that it had when God in his glory created it to mirror his own. That's the completion that we all need. So may we not become people who are satisfied to swap out one set of idols for another and trade the idols of singleness for the idols of marriage or, or vice versa. Neither of those things can hold the weight of what you're trying to put on them in that moment. So what can hold the weight? What can hold the weight of our hopes and dreams and our longings? What can hold that? Only the goodness of God. Only the goodness of God can hold that. And the question is always then, will we trust God's goodness? Will we trust him? And trust in God isn't really tested until your life looks radically different than you envisioned it playing out. It's not really tested until it looks completely different in some way or another than the way you envisioned it playing out. Like if you're happy with how everything's going in your life, how much trust does that actually require in that moment? You're single and you want to be single? Great. You're married and you want to be married? Great. Maybe that requires a little bit of trust and dependence on God. But it requires far less than the cases where things go radically different than you'd planned, than you'd hoped for, than you've longed for. And this isn't unique to just a, a marital status thing. This happens on all kinds of fronts in our lives all the time. You know, you didn't make the team. Uh, you didn't get into the school you wanted to. You lost your job and you can't find one. You were hurt by a friend. You were diagnosed with a serious illness or condition that you never saw coming because you never do. All of those things. But because of the nature of marriage and the kind of relationship that it is and the longings and the wounds that get caught up with that in our own heart and soul, this is an area where trust in the goodness of God gets tested deeply, deeply. Is God good? Is God good? 
The answer that Paul would give, the answer from the whole counsel of God as he reveals himself in his word, is unequivocally yes. Yes, God is good. He gives good gifts to his children. He can be trusted. But will we trust his goodness? And let me differentiate this for you for just a moment. Not do you believe intellectually that God is good. It doesn't cost you anything to like check that box on an exam. It doesn't cost you anything to go, I believe God's good. Check. No, it costs you something, namely control and understanding and comfort. It costs you something to actually believe that deeply in your own heart. So let me invite you this morning, and even, and even more than invite you, just, just plead with you, implore you, trust God with your longings. Trust God with your longings. Are you single and you want to be married? Trust God with that longing. Are you married and just exhausted in your marriage and you just long for it to be different in some way? Trust God with that longing. And whatever it is, however pretty or ugly it is, or however polished or raw it is at that moment, just bring that longing of your heart to God. Bring it to Him. Because actually bringing it to Him is the first step in trusting Him. And trusting that He really is good and that He really is for your good, to bring it to Him in the first place acknowledges that you're starting to put your trust in Him and His goodness. Regardless of what the the external outworking of that goodness is going to look like. And I know that that's so much easier said than done. But I really would invite you to trust that you can't fathom a better reality for your life than God does. You can't fathom a better reality for your life than God does. And that's actually why Jesus came to purchase and secure for us this perfect future. This taste that we get to experience now of this perfect future. And in the meantime... God is not cold, and he's not distant, and he's not unfeeling to the deep desires of our hearts, to our longings. He just knows things that we don't, and he always will. He just knows things that we don't, and he's using that knowledge for our good. So Paige Benton, this author that I quoted at the beginning, she actually models doing this really well at the end of her article. So I just want to close with her words as an example of what trusting in the goodness of God sounds like in practice. So she says this, God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It's a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. And she goes on to say, singleness is not an inherently, an inherently inferior state of affairs. Right? She's come to terms, it's not an inherently inferior state of affairs. But then she goes on to say, But I want to be married. But I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. And I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. So like she does in those words, may we trust God with our longings and may we throw ourselves on his goodness. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that it's easy to say that we trust you in your goodness and it's really hard to actually believe that in practice. 
Most of the time, when we would say we are trusting you, it's because we just like our circumstances, and we like how our life is playing out, and it's not really being tested. And we need you, God, to do work in our hearts that we cannot by helping us to really believe that you fathom the life for us that is the best for us, that is for our good, that is doing the most good in us, and that is preparing us for this perfect eternity, this perfect future that, Jesus, you have secured by your death and your resurrection. So I pray that we would bring our longings to you, specifically today, our longings about singleness and marriage, our longings to be married for those of us who are not married, and even our longings to have something totally different about our marriage, or maybe even be out of a marriage if we're married and we don't want to be in one right now. Would you just help us to take a first step of trust in you by just bringing to you, in whatever raw form it is, our longings? And would you, in that moment, meet us? And would you remind us of your goodness? And would you help us to trust it? And I pray that even today, for those that are really wrestling with this, that this table would be an experience of your goodness. It is, it, is, it is exactly for that that we come to this table every week to see your goodness, that you would, you would pay the penalty for our sin and you would take the weight upon yourselves that we cannot bear. We see in your body and your blood a picture of your goodness. Help us as we come to be strengthened by it and by your grace and to believe more deeply that you truly are good and for our good. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.